Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about the World Championships, which Julian Alaphilippe beautifully defended, incredibly defended. Uh, really, really, really uh, uh, a world-class performance. One of the best races I've ever seen from him. And I'd, I'd say one of the best races in the modern history of the sport. I know that sounds crazy, but um, the mix of the crowds and the racing, really all-out racing, pretty much from the gun, almost 270 kilometers of all-out racing. So really an impressive win and an overall race there, um, as well as Pere Roubaix coming up this Sunday. Um, super weird. I can't get over this. Uh, Roubaix's always in the spring, but because of a COVID surge or a lack of hospital capacity in Northern France this spring, they've moved it to the fall, which I actually kind of prefer. Um, but before we get into that, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. It comes out once a week. If you like the podcast, that's a no brainer. Sign up right now. There's a link in the episode notes. There's also a paid edition comes out every day during grand tours and also breaks down every major race comes out trice weekly, even in the off season. Um, and you get disc, you also get discounts to select brands like stages, cycling, fast cat coaching, Cure of Switzerland. If you want to unlock that value, you can also sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, so back to the racing, the World Championships this last weekend in the Flanders region of Belgium, really the home of cycling. Uh, I know other places could, could, could probably claim that, but after seeing this World Championships, there's no other place that embraces cycling like Flanders does. The, the roads were packed with fans for pretty much the entire 268 kilometers. Um, just kind of zooming out the the big notes from the course where it went from Antwerp to Leuven. Beautiful town. Leuven is the big winner. I know Alaphilippe literally won, but also Leuven. I, I never would have thought to go to this town before this race. Uh, after watching pretty much every race all week, I'm so game to go on a vacation to Leuven. It looks like a beautiful city, beautiful little city, not too big, not too small, uh, with great cycling, just incredible cycling. But so it's 268 kilometers from Antwerp to Leuven with two big loops. You have a country loop. I guess they call it the Flandrian loop uh, with the hardest climb. I'm still, I mean, none of these climbs are that hard. There was a 500 meter, I think it was 500 meters long. So half a kilometer long, um, about 8% average. You know, that in itself is not going to, is not going to be that selective, but the pace was just so tough. It's these Flandrian roads. They're so up and down and constantly turning when, you, when you're just shooting out of corners all day. Positioning becomes so important and you just get that accumulated fatigue. You're just constantly sprinting up these smaller hills. They seem, you know, at least watching the race, they seemed endless. And, and you could tell from the riders' fatigue in the race that they had definitely also felt like it was endless. And also, the World Championships, I, I don't know if I, I'm pretty sure, I know it wasn't like this in Qatar in 2016, but it, I feel like every other edition is also a circuit which adds it it changes the race more than people talk about something about it 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 increases the intensity of racing in my opinion I, maybe i should go and do an actual study on this but just the fact that you're never out in empty countryside there's always fans next to you and and you're going over the same roads over and over again it's not quite the same mental not quite the same mindset as you know just kind of drifting along a French highway, an empty French highway with 100 miles left in a Tour de France stage. This is always on racing. I, I, I do wonder if, if the circuit has something to do with it. Um, big, big notes from the race. Belgium, big favorites coming in, had an incredibly strong team, multiple winners on that team. 
the the big headlines of that team would be Remco Evenepoel and Wout Van Aert, two of the best, two of the best, two I guess two of the strongest riders in the world. Evenepoel is very good, um, not necessarily a prolific winner. Van Aert certainly a prolific winner can win on pretty much any type of course. Uh, but I thought that Belgium played this really oddly. And, and looking back, I think they fell into Alaphilippe's trap. If we isolate a couple situations in the race, uh, we it was pretty much all-out racing. You know, maybe for the first 30, 40 kilometers, they did let a breakaway go. It got somewhat of a gap. But as far as 175K, Benoit Cosnefret on France attacks, Remco Evenepoel follows him, and they get a strong group. It's a really strong group. That could have been the winning move, going 175 kilometers from the finish which is almost incomprehensible. But, I mean, one thing, there's a little uh, video clip in the newsletter showing this. The group is huge. There's a reason winning moves don't normally go at 175k to go because there's just way too much firepower in the group behind. Even if you get a strong group, that was about as strong as a strong as group as you could possibly imagine getting up the road in a one-day race that early. It still gets pulled back. Why? Because the, the chase group is so dang big. Italy had pretty much a full suite of riders there. You know, maybe if Italy gets a rider in that group, that changes it. But still, we even still saw Belgium chasing who had Remco in there working, which, which doesn't make any sense. I'll talk about that in a second. But 167 kilometers to go, they hit a cobbled climb. Belgium gets to the front, clogs this thing up. Uh, I think without this maneuver, this, the race might have come back together right here. Um, I, I think this was decisive, but not in favor of Belgium, who is the reason that the group got away. Um, they blocked the road. I, I guess their thinking is, okay, we have Evenepoel in this breakaway. The gap's going to explode, and it's going to put pressure on Italy to chase. Um, that's kind of what happened. Um, and maybe they thought, if Italy chasing, it's just going to make it a hard race. The harder the race, the better it is for us, because we have Wout van Aert, who can win on a hard race, and specifically a hard race that comes down to a reduced sprint. And they want to get rid of, I guess, quote unquote, faster riders like Nizzolo and Caleb Ewan. You know, Caleb Ewan is faster in a Tour de France sprint. Um, he's faster, I guess, at the end of Milano San Remo, as we saw earlier this year, which is 300 kilometers. But you got to remember, Milano San Remo is so much easier. I, I don't know if Caleb Ewan could have won a sprint at the end of a race this difficult. And even if a large group came to the final circuit, I have a hard time believing that they would have gone to the line to contest a Basically, like a 30 to 40 rider sprint, that final circuit was so difficult and technical and up and down that I, I still think a small group would have gotten away. So I, I, I don't quite understand why their first priority was dump the faster riders at the expense of preserving Remco for later in the race, who, who could have, you know, there's a, re, there's a reality where Remco gets away with Evenepoel at the end. He, he was that strong. I think he was the second strongest rider in this race. Um, super impressive, but they blocked the road. Remco gets up the road. And another odd thing, this is probably due to the fact that there's no race radios. Remco is working in this group. So right here, you know, we have a situation where Belgium's blocking the road. Remco's working in a breakaway, but working in a breakaway with riders that are a lot faster than him in a sprint. So even if he sticks this to the line, he's going to lose. I don't know what Belgium is doing right here. This is, this is a huge miscalculation. I think the first mis mis miscalculation, and I think this just played into Alaphilippe's hand. Alaphilippe has Benoit Cosnefray up the road. Benoit is not a, you know, he's not a top-tier teammate on that French squad. This is exactly the role he's, trying, he's there to play. 
Unlike Evanapol, who should be one of your cards to play in the endgame, Belgium's burning him up the road. This is perfect for Alaphilippe. The Italian team pulls the race back with 100k to go. It's all back together, which is, I couldn't believe this. Uh, I was thinking, God, 100k to go. The race is back together. That means it's going to be constant attacks and hard racing from here on in after 168 kilometers that have been pretty dang hard themselves. So not a great position to be in if you're in the race. Uh, this, is, this is a total disaster. And you could see Belgium arguing with each other, probably about what exactly they want to do right here. They're, they're setting a hard pace in the front. Again, I think a mistake because they're just dropping their own riders. They're, they're burning valuable resources, valuable uh, manpower, people power at the front, and they're clearly not in agreement on it. Niels Paulette with 90k to go, powers away. Like, great move. Uh, love Niels. Yeah, I'll, always game for Niels' attack. But Evanapol goes with them again. And this is another strong group. Also notable, US has, Brandon, has uh, Nielsen Palace in this move after having Brandon McNulty in the last move. Perfect racing from Team USA right here. I, I haven't been this impressed by a Team USA performance in quite some time. But so you have this weird situation where Evan pulls up the road with a group that's also probably not going to stay away. And he's doing a lot of work. He's taking a lot of polls in this group. Even weirder, his Belgium team is chasing him down because they wanted to come back together for Wout Van Aert. So what are they doing here? I, I either have Evanapol sit on up front or don't pull him back and let him contest the win, which, which wouldn't be a great idea because it's going to be hard for Evanapol to win out of a group that's larger than one. Um, you know, if anything, Evanapol's best chance of winning this race would be to sit in, you know, really win it a la Alaphilippe, exactly the way Julian Alaphilippe did. Not, you know, driving breakaways 170Ks from the finish line. That, that's not going to get the job done. So Belgium's burning, you know, manpower on both ends here. They have Evanapol pulling in the breakaway. They have Wout van Aert and Jasper Stuyven, two riders that they really should be saving for the finish, chasing behind. Julian Alaphilippe finally comes out to play at 58 kilometers to go, accelerates on a cobble climb, really breaks up. The Peloton, this is kind of like game over for anyone who was mildly in difficulty or just hanging on. Um, and what's notable about this is Alaphilippe was sitting at the back with 100k to go. So I'm look, I saw that and I thought, well, this guy's done. Like He's already at the back. He's just hanging on. In retrospect, he was just taking a huge gamble of saying, I'm just going to sit back here, get maximum draft, eat, drink, rest. I'm not playing any part in these silly games going on at the front. I'm just going to wait until we get into you know, the final 60 kilometers, and then I'm going to start testing people. And what he's doing with these attacks is, you know, he's A, breaking the race up. He's just trying to make it as selective as possible. He's trying to pull that group back at the front, but he's also learning. You know, he's, you can see Wout Van Aert on his wheel every time he attacks. Wout does not look that good. He is struggling to reel in Alaphilippe. Alaphilippe just looks like he's floating over these cobblestones. Wout looks like he's pushing a wheelbarrow. He, he looks really labored here. And also, Alaphilippe knows he's softening these guys up. So it's like these probing attacks, just probing, probing, probing before he lays the knockout blow, which he does later in the race. But after this Alaphilippe attack, uh, Stuyven and, and Van Aert just start drilling it on the front to, to pull in this breakaway. They get, you know, they're about 16 seconds away with 56, 56 kilometers to go. Um, kind of a foregone conclusion at that point. But what's odd is as soon as they make contact with the group, Alaphilippe waits till the next attack, waits until the next climb and attacks because this is super smart from him. He knows Evanapol will be tired from pulling in the break, pushing that move. 
And he knows Stoyven and Van Art will be tired from pulling him up to the breakaway with their own teammate, teammate in it. Um, very, very smart move. You can even see Nielsen Palace, who's on the front, shake his head, look behind, saying, is anyone else going to do something about this? This guy is ridiculous. Um, Sonny Cabrelli is pretty quick to respond with Wout Van Art right on his wheel. Uh, but right here, you, know, you can kind of tell something's not quite right with Van Art. He looks really labored every time Alaphilippe tests him. Um, if he's struggling this much, 49 kilometers from the finish, it, it just gets infinitely harder from here on in. Um, he might not be fine in the final circuit, which Alaphilippe certainly notices. Uh, the attack doesn't work, but you can see when, when they reel him in, Alaphilippe is really looking fresh. And the Belgian team looks, looks pretty toast. And you can kind of see some confusion and, and almost defeated faces in that group. Um, Matthew Vanderpool is, is one of the, just the most impressive riders on the bike in the modern peloton. And he looked like, and he kind of looked like a guy who like just upgraded to the next category. And you're just like used to dominating, but he's just hanging on at this point. He did not look his normal self, neither than Wout Van Aert. Um, Evanepoel looked pretty good, especially for all the work he had done. But there weren't many riders in this, in this group that looked like they were as strong as Alphilippe. Um, Evanepoel goes to the front right after this Alphilippe attack. The goal is to set a hard pace so that Alphilippe cannot keep attacking. The problem with this, you know, this works in the short term, but Alaphilippe knows, you know, all I have to do is Evanepoel can't do this until the finish line. He's going to get us to about one and a half laps to go, and then it's my time, and then there's no one to stop me. There's no one to protect Stoyven and Van Aert. Uh, that's exactly what he does. Him and he has a teammate in the group. They play the waiting game. Um, as soon as Evanepoel pulls off, they wait for the next climb. Teammate launches him. It looks like it could be the race when he moves. Van Arch swings out to pull him back, but you can tell that he is really, really struggling. There's a big gap between him and Alaphilippe at this point. Alaphilippe waits for this small, it's like a small, narrow, cobbled climb right before the finish line, telling them they have one lap to go. Steps out, another attack. Everyone sees it. Sonny Cabrelli's on the front. No one can do anything about it. I mean, it's like they know it's coming. They know they can't stop it. And he all, importantly, Alaphilippe knows they can't stop it because he's been testing them for the, for the last you know, 30K at this point. When they get to the top of the climb, there's a few riders like Dylan Van Barl, Nielsen Palace, Jasper Stuyven, who, who kind of, they try to bridge up to him. They get stuck in the middle. Um, and then Michael Valgren just kind of steps out. He, this is super smart move right here. He just steps out and, and you have to, it's like a mini sprint. You, you know, it's like being caught in quicksand. You have, you know, four seconds to respond. If you don't respond in those four seconds, you're done. Uh, Valgren sees the window closing, steps out, sprints up to Van Bar, Palace, and Stuyven. There's a few riders, you know, Van Aert's right at the front. He can't do anything about it. You know, he, and everyone's looking at him. He's in a very bad position. People are looking at him to reel in the group, even though his teammate, Jasper Stuyven, is up the road. So he can't do th anything, even if he wants to, but he, he could have responded to Valgren's attack. That would have been the answer here if he had the legs. Same thing with Matthew Vanderpoel, his teammates up the road, and Dylan Van Barrow. But if he wanted to, actually the right thing to do would have been to just jump on Valgren's wheel. Because if someone is bridging up to your teammate, you know, not only do you have fair game to jump on their wheel, you should jump on their wheel because it deters them from making the bridge. They're thinking, well, I got to pull this guy up and he's not going to help me. Um, it, it's such a great, great tactical move, um, especially in, in lower levels of racing. But right here, it would have worked. Tom Pickcock sitting like ninth wheel, perfect position, watches this happen, doesn't do anything. Uh, Pickcock had the legs. We see him attack later in the race. 
This is where Tom Pickock loses A, his chance to win, or B, his chance to podium, um, which really would have been incredible. He's only 22 years old. I was, I was actually shocked at the level of fitness he had after looking like he was struggling through the entire Volta Espana, which shows the Volta is a great way to build fitness for worlds. And then after this, it's really just the Philippe show. You know, he's dangling, you know, as, as close as like six seconds in front of the chasing group. You know, and you think Stuyven, Van Barl, and Palace are really strong riders, and, and they were working pretty well together, especially since uh, Palace and Valgren are teammates, trade teammates on EF. Uh, but they, they really, they still couldn't peg him back. I mean, Al Philippe was, he, he looked as strong as I've ever seen him. He looked so light, like so lean and strong, um, but also powerful and fast at the same time. Um, and when we get inside this last 9K, we can see what he's doing. He was really measuring his effort on the final lap because he just starts pulling that gap out. You know, it's, it's over half a minute by the time he crosses the finish line for the win. You can see all the Flemish fans telling him to slow down, uh, which was pretty funny. Uh, Dylan Van Bauer gets second in the sprint. Matt, Michael Valgren third. Great result for him. Jasper Stuyven fourth. Total disaster for Belgium. They get the chocolate medal, as Johan Bernil calls it. Fifth for Nielsen Ballas, great result. Even though he gets last in that group, that is a huge result for him. Tom Pickock, who attacked out of the chasing peloton, kind of the useless chasing peloton back there, gets sixth, but super disappointing because he was, outside of Alaphilippe, maybe the strongest rider on that final lap, just missed the, missed the train when Valgren went. He needed to go with him if he wanted to win. But in conclusion, I just really thought this, I thought this was a, a great race from Alaphilippe. Um, the best I've ever seen him race. He, he becomes only the seventh back-to-back -back winner. I guess the eighth person to defend his title because Sagan won three in a row. Um, but nonetheless, it is super rare. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. He won solo exactly how he won last year. That's what I said in the preview that he could win, but he's not been winning sprints against Riders like Van Aert, Vanderpool, I mean, even Valgren probably would have beat him in that sprint. Tom Pitcock could have beat him in that sprint. He knew he had to win solo. That's what's so impressive about this to me. It's hard to win solo. It's even harder to win solo when everyone knows you have to win solo. And to do it two years in a row is almost incomprehensibly difficult. So just a lot of, a lot of respect for Alaphilippe here. But I thought the Belgian squad, as much as Alaphilippe won this, the Belgian squad screwed this up. To come into a race, a home national, home world championships with a roster like that, and and I thought race kind like kind of just like knuckleheads. Like what were they doing with Evanapol? Sure, that was impressive. Um, it was more than impressive. It seemed like he was pulling the entire race. You step back, you ask why. Was that a good use of his resources? He was strong enough. He could have responded to Alaphilippe in that finale if he would have been sitting in earlier in the race. Sure, Alaphilippe's faster than him. That's a problem. But look, they got fourth. They got nothing. They got no medals. At least if, if Evanapol's up the road with Alphilippe, you potentially neutralize Alphilippe because Evanapol can sit on and maybe Stoyven can catch him. Maybe even Van Aert can catch him. And also, if, if Evanapol's sitting on Alphilippe, maybe he can attack on the same climb that, that Alphilippe attacked on to get clear with one lap to go on the final lap. Um, they just could have had a lot of interesting options there, but instead I thought they really, they, it was like a macho move. Like we're just going to grind everyone in the dust. And then the harder the race, the better it is for us because Wout's the strongest rider in the race. Well, that wasn't really the reality. Um, Wout was not the strongest rider in the race. Wout needed an easier race. Also, I thought it was a weird kind of dis non, like they weren't believing in Wout's speed. He's a very fast sprinter. Sure. Like you wouldn't want to pull him to the line 
normally, like in a tour sprint, to sprint against Caleb Ewan. But this is a world championship. So this is a very difficult race. You know, Grand Tour sprinters don't have a great record. You know, I, that's that's overstating it. They basically never win the world championship. So um, I think that fear was a little, if that was a fear, I thought that was a little strange fear. You know, there's not a great record of, of fast sprinters beating stronger sprinters at the end of hard one-day races like this. Um, and if you think back to how Wout won Milana Sanremo, you know, he won that in a sprint against Julian Alaphilippe, actually. So um, I, I just thought that was a weird decision. I, I don't understand it. Even now, a few days afterwards, I'm a little confused about that whole thing. Um, other notes, Matthew Vanderpoel clearly still struggling with fitness. Um, he had that, I guess, a slip disc at the Olympics from crashing in the mountain bike race. Um, pretty impressive to finish where he finished, but it was not sparkling as he was this spring. He actually looked like a completely, completely different rider. I, I don't think if his back is, is bothering him that a whole race pair Roubaix this coming Sunday. We'll talk about that later in the podcast. Um, Italy uh, kind of stuffed it up. They were always, always on the wrong side of the splits here. Uh, in the end, it not, did not end up mattering because Sonny Cabrelli just couldn't respond to the attacks from stronger riders on the final circuit. Uh, Michael Valgren, Michael Valgren did a great job. You know, he he's been in the he's been in the woods for like the last three years. He had a great 2018. He's been nowhere for 2019, 2020. I don't even think before he won two consecutive Italian one day races earlier this month. I don't think he had won a race since 2018. So this is a great result for him. Um, things fall a different way. He he wins this race. So. The fact that he put himself in that position is super impressive. Same thing with Nielsen Palace. I was really impressed with him. Um, and, and other big takeaways, just this is a hard race. This is one of the hardest one-day races I've ever seen. You, you don't see them all out from the gun that often. Um, it was like a Grand Tour stage, but like 100 kilometers longer. Um, and then mix that with the fans and the setting. I thought it was just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful event. Great race to watch. Um, nothing, but, nothing but great things to say about it. Uh, this is like the platonic ideal of, of what a bike race should be, what a Sunday of bike racing should be. All right, so let's talk about Perry Roubaix coming up this Sunday. Um, super, super weird to have Worlds with Perry Roubaix right after it. Um, never happened before, or at least as far as I, I know, as far as I'm aware of. Um, I kind of like it though. You know, Worlds, it's almost a letdown after Worlds a lot of times. Um, there's a little bit of sadness, sadness in my heart because it's the, the big one days are over. But we get at least the northern one is over. We always still have Lombardy, Giro di Lombardia. That's not the same. It's not the same. Let's be honest. So we still have at least one more northern classic left and potentially the best of them all. Roubaix hasn't happened in so long. I, I don't even remember what this. It's hard to remember the, the trends of this race. It hasn't run since, um, I believe, April of 2019. So what is that? That's almost two years ago. Um, Philippe Gilbert won that edition. What's crazy is Gilbert is basically semi-retired at this point. I don't know if he's racing next year. He, he wasn't. He didn't make the Belgian team for the national championships. That's shocking to think how much has changed since the last time Roubaix happened to now. You know, the, the who are the dominant riders? Like who? Think about it. Tadej Pogacar was basically an unknown the last time Roubaix happened, and now he's in the middle of a of a dynasty at the Tour de France. That's how long ago it was. So Gilbert is starting the race, but um, I do not expect him to figure in proceedings. Um, he's just not even close to the same rider that he was when he won in 2019. Um, also crazy, Peter Sagan won in 2018, only two editions ago. Sagan was just, just really outclassed. I thought this world championships was 
Um, really kind of, I'm a big Sagan fan, been, been a big fan of his since, you know, he came on the scene. Um, I think this world was just, this was a perfect race for him. You know, he would have won this race with his eyes closed in 2018, but he just did, he's not as strong as he used to be. And he's certainly not as strong as the, as the top riders are now. So, uh, I, I don't expect a lot from him. This is actually going to be an interesting classic where the past winner list will pro will I don't think any of these guys will figure in proceedings this year. Greg Van Avermaet won in 2017. He's, he's not the same. He claims it was from his COVID vaccine. He, I don't think he's won a race since 2018. As far as I know, the COVID vaccine was not around since 2018. Matt Heyman retired. He won in 2016. John Degenkolb won, won in 2015. Nikki Terpstra, 2014. Fabian Cancellar, 2013. It's like we're, we're reading ancient hieroglyphics at this point. Tom, Tom Boone in 2012. Uh, I mean, I think John Degenkolb will be at the start. I do not expect him to figure in proceedings at all. Um, a couple of notes about Roubaix. It's, if you don't know, it's raced on, I guess, Napoleonic roads. They look like Roman roads. They're, they're, they're really, really, really rugged cobblestone roads in northern France. Um, because of it, it's also super flat. It's not like Tour of Flanders or even this World Championships where it's like, quote unquote, flat, but there's hills. It is very flat. So what you know, because of the mixture of the rough roads and the flat nature, the bigger the bigger the rider, the better here. Um, this is usually one the average weight of the winner is seventy three kilograms, which is huge for a professional cyclist, and that's the average. That's with guys. Bernardi No was eighty two sixty two kilometers, and so that means you have guys up to eighty eighty five. Sorry, Bernardi Bernardi No was sixty two kilograms. That means you have guys up to eighty eighty five kilograms. On the regular, winning this race, it's also won by tall riders. I, I'm not quite sure what this is. I'm kind of interested in it. it. It could just be a function that, you know, if you're tall, you're usually heavier. So maybe it's just that. But I do wonder if something about the cobblestones, the tall riders do seem their pedal stroke. It's kind of this longer pedal stroke seems to work better on the rough, rough cobblestones. I have nothing to back that up. It's also possible that drafting is less important because of the rough roads you know the rougher the surface the less drafting is important because you know you, you can't draft as easily you know you can't just sit on someone's wheel and coast along because you're losing power every time you go over a cobblestone so it could be that big riders that people just normally sit on and then pick off at the end um can drop people because they can't other riders smaller riders can't just draft on them and also age you know i think the average age is the average age of the winner since 2015 is thir almost 32 years old. That's ancient for professional cycling. So if you think about, okay, what, what, what are the qualities of a winner here? Um, heavy rider, tall rider, old rider. Um, that's, not, that's the opposite of Remco Evenepoel, who is, uh, for some odd reason, people have gotten into their minds that he is like a a big classics rider. That's not the case. He is, he is small. He's smaller than, he's too kilograms smaller than Julian Alaphilippe, who's already pretty small. Um, the, big, the big favorites in the betting markets are, are who you, you would expect. Wout Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, Mads Pedersen, Peter Sagan, Florian Seneschel. Florian Seneschel's a great pick here. Jasper Stuyven, Kasper Askren, Tom Pitcock. I really don't like Tom Pitcock on this course. Same thing with Evanepoel. Um, You want to be tall, you want to be heavy, you want to be old. Pitcock's none of those things. 
the the actually the pick I really like here and someone I have money on is Casper Askren. Um, he won Tour of Flanders earlier this year. Flanders and Roubaix tend to go hand in hand. It's not a one for one. A lot of riders who win Flanders aren't quite suited to Roubaix and vice versa. But a lot of the greats have won these in the same years. This is a little bit different because they're not a week apart as they normally are. They are like half a year apart. But I still think Askren, who proved he was in really good shape in the time trial world championships, could be a big favorite here. And another thing that tends to come into play at Roubaix is the favorite, the favorites tend to struggle. The odds on favorites, because you you it's a super interesting race. I mean, I highly recommend watching it. They come into these cobble sections and it's just like all out. You're just hammering on the cobble sections. Um, you know, you're fighting to survive. There's no tactics. You get to a pavement section. It's been so hard on the cobble section that everyone lets off. Everyone's kind of coasting, just trying to cover before the next cobble section. What can happen there is like a B favorite or a C favorite. So someone like Askren, someone like Florence and Michelle will attack. And the big favorites, you know, they can't respond to everyone. And a lot of times they won't want to respond. And everyone will stare at them and say, come on, wow, come on, Matthew, chase those guys down. And that doesn't happen. And the, the lesser favorites, you know, they can build up like 10, 20, 30 second advantage on the pavement when everyone's kind of you know, coasting, resting. You know, they hold the same speed on the cobblestones. The thing about the cobblestones is a group ha- does not have the advantage here. Um, you're just riding. You're you're getting a little bit of draft, but it's not that good. And also, it's just easier to be in front of the cobblestones. You can see where you're riding. You can pick the better line. So you get this phenomenon where the group is not at the advantage. It's it's like the it's like bizarro bike racing. It's the reverse of how it normally is. A single rider or a group of two or three um, can stay away, and a lot of times they do. You know, it's not super common to have a solo winner. The last solo winner was. Was Nikki Terpstra in 2014? That's a, that's a scenario exactly what I'm talking about here, where you get a B or C favorite just kind of floating off the front, and no one can chase him. No one chases him down until it's too late. You get a lot of small reduced sprints, though. That's how Philippe Jalabert won. Um, that's how Peter Sagan won. That is how Greg Van Avermaet won. It's really common. A sprint of either one in, one one in one to two, or like one to four to five riders, um, is super common here. So. A lot of times you want to be able to sprint. You know, super slow riders don't normally win this. Johan van Summeren and Nikki Terpstra being the big outliers there. Um, you want to be so you want to be strong and you want to be fast, like fast enough to win a, a reduced sprint. Um, certainly Wout van Aert is. Now Matthew Vanderpool, when he's healthy, is. Mads Pedersen is perfect there. Mads Pedersen, though, I've not been impressed by, by his fitness. I think at plus one thousand, that, that's a terrible pick. Um, Peter Sagan at plus 1200, also a terrible pick. He's just not fit enough. Also, fitness really matters at Roubaix because you can't fake it on those cobblestones. You got to be so, so fit. Jasper Stoyven at plus 1600, I love. Um, proved he was super fit at Worlds. He can sprint, so that's great. Um, Zinnick Stebar, always, always up here, never wins, never wins. Jack Diddley, don't bet on him. He's at plus 2000. Yves Lampart, I also love him. And also, there's the Deconic Quickstep factor here. Deconic Quickstep dominates at these types of races because they have so many options. They might not ever have the, the best rider. I don't think since Tom Boonen in 2012, they've had the strongest rider at this race. But they have like they have like a fleet of, of very good riders, and they use them incredibly well. They can get guys off the front. They can force other teams and riders into incredibly difficult positions, and they can a lot of times up, upset the favorites at these types of races. So, and, and they're incredible at the classics. 
So any one, any one of these kind of quick steps, kind of like uh, B, B riders, Florian Sinichel, Yves Lampard, I love. I can't get enough of them. Julian Alaphilippe at plus 2,500. A couple things about Alaphilippe. He looks incredible. Um, one of the strongest riders in the world. I mean, the literal world champion, but he's light. Um, the lightest ever winner of this race, at least in my research, is 62 kilograms. That's Bernardi No. It's exactly what Alaphilippe is listed at. So it's not impossible, but it, it, it's unlikely. You know, he's not, he is so light. I cannot imagine him hanging in and being able to power over those cobblestones for six or seven hours. Um, but it's not impossible. You know, I guess you want to factor in recent form. But another thing I would be worried about is just the, the fatigue from the last week. I have to imagine there was some partying. Um, there was some fun having there to be able to come back the next week in race a race that's just as intense seems uh, it doesn't seem plausible that that could happen and that's why the Flanders Roubaix double is so special um, almost never happens uh, but it, it's not impossible uh, I'd say that Alaphilippe is good enough that it's hard to count him out when he when he's really on form. But I would say it's very unlikely. Another rider I I don't hate is Michael Valgren at plus thirty three hundred, and in my real my baby pick my my baby is Niels Pollitt at plus thirty three hundred. That guy looks so strong, so strong at Worlds, and this is a perfect race for him. You know he's he, I think he's over eighty eighty kilograms. He struggles in a lot of races because of that weight. That's not going to matter here. It's Neil's time. <laughs> this is like payback. He's probably been waiting for this for, for years. He got second here in 2019. I, that was the last time this race happened. I, I, he, I think he's completely underrated here. And another thing about Roubaix is it, it's, it's almost impossible to ride this race if it rains, and it never rains. Um, it's kind of ridiculous that it's in like a wet, very wet part of the world, but it's almost become like a meme how dry it is at this race every year. Um, it is forecast to rain on Sunday, so that would make it incredibly interesting. And that's something that you know I think could swing the favor back to a, a super skilled rider like Alaphilippe. Um, obviously, Van Art and Vanderpool are great cyclocross riders, so in theory, that would help them. Um, the thing is, we don't have a great example. We don't have really have any data points on how any modern riders ride on wet cobblestones at Roubaix because it hasn't happened in so long. But that, that would be the one thing that I would worry about with Niels. I, he doesn't strike me as the, the nimblest of people. So it, it's just hard to tell. Other, other, outs, other picks, other riders to think about. Matej Motoric, um, super strong. He was super strong at Worlds. In, the, in that front group, he, he could be really good here. Um, this is actually the, the perfect type of racing for him. Sonny Cabrelli, I don't think he has a great record at Roubaix. But with, it, with this form and its kind of newfound strength and endurance, um, that's a really interesting rider for me. All right, well, I think I'll be back on before Roubaix runs. I might have a special edition of the podcast coming out later this week. Um, but if not, enjoy the race. Um, that's it for me this week. And thanks for listening. All right, bye. Bye.